Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Amber Hortman. I am a master's student in political science at the University of Copenhagen. It is my great pleasure today to be joined by Mr. José Ramos Horta, former president of Timor-Leste from 2007 until 2012 and joint winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1996. Mr. Ramos Horta played an enormous role in bringing the cause of East Timor under intention within the international community during the brutal years of Indonesian occupation. He will be called Son of the Nation, and today I will talk with him about Asia's youngest nation, Timor-Leste. His presidential election in which he's running as a presidential candidate, Timor-Leste's current challenges and its future prospects. Mr. Ramos Horta, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Pleasure. At the moment we're sitting in your office in Dili, Timor-Leste, and it has been little over a week that the country has casted their vote for the next president for a five-year term. Following the first round of voting on 19th of March, you are now the front runner to become president. How do you feel? I'm uh, first fully uh, pleased, satisfied with the way the whole election has been developed in the sense of that it has been very peaceful. There were some extremely rare, sporadic uh, incidents. There were some uh, stone throwing in uh, the second major town of Timor-Leste, and one girl died of that. That was not related to my candidacy. It was, ironically, two other parties that actually are in a coalition government, Fratelli and Kuntu. The attackers were Fratelli and the victim was Kuntu. But overall, otherwise, the campaign has been, uh, for me, extremely well. Enormous popular support. I got more than 300,000 uh, votes as against the second, which uh, was on, uh, he got 140,000. So now we are going to the second round, as uh, stipulated by the Constitution. If no candidate get over 50 in the first round, two most voted have to have a runoff. So that's what's happening now. And I'm uh, utterly confident that I will uh, get, if not 400,000 votes, so an additional 100,000 votes, at least I will have uh, the same amount of votes in the first round. Yeah, because in the first round you got 46 and a half percent of the votes and now you will run against President Francisco Gutierrez, also called Luolo, on the 19th of April. And I'm wondering, you were the first Minister of Foreign Affairs after independence, you were the Prime Minister during the 2006 crisis and you've been elected President from 2007 until 2012. During your presidency in 2008, a group of rebellion soldiers attempted to assassinate you. Why have you decided to run again? It was uh, not in my plan whatsoever to run again for president. As I had no plan to be prime minister in 2006 or to be elected president in 2007, 
In my plan and the preferred choice, I would serve only as Minister of Foreign Affairs 2001-2007, so only the first five years of independence, and then I would quit for good any formal institutional role in the country. Back then, 2002, I told the then Prime Minister, who invited me to be Foreign Minister, I told him I would stay on only till 2007. However, in 2005, 2006, I was the one who was key to pacify the country. I was the one who traveled all over the country. I was in every neighborhood, day and night. In my home, I had hundreds of anonymous women, children, elderly who took shelter in my home. When the security crisis erupted in 2006, I opened the gates of the house. I told my guards outside, they were unarmed guards, they were just civilian guards. Anyone who wished to come in, let them come in. So because of that, the role that I played in uh, calming the situation, in mediating, I did uh, and endless, endless hours of going to every neighborhood. Could be 10 p.m., could be 1 a.m., could be 3 a.m. Any message coming to me about violence erupting somewhere in the city, off I would go. I remember at one point, one of my brothers told me, listen, you are not the police. Well, the problem is the police disappear. No leader uh, was in town. No, they were in their own homes. Mr. Shannon, highly respected, he was up in the hills. That's where he lived, you know, a few, 40 minutes from Dillion. So I was the one who I felt obligated. Because of that, the church, civil society, and Mr. Shannon decided to call me to serve as prime minister, which I did. And then in 2007, called me to serve as president. And I ran for president in 2007. So I left in 2012. And then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon invited me to go to Guinea-Bissau to have the UN peace-building integrated mission. I came back home. I didn't stay long. Ban Ki-moon called me again to go to New York. I went to New York and became, uh, was appointed chair of the new group called High Level Independent Panel on United Nations Peace Operations. To review the doctrine, to adapt the UN to the new challenges of 21st centuries, the new security challenges. And I've been engaged with many other international initiatives. So this is only to say, after I left office, I was busy with uh, very stimulating challenges and I accepted those challenges with not only my mind and determination, but with heart. Because when I went to Guinea-Bissau, how people were so uh, hopeful that I would um, bring peace to the country. And that gradually how uh, I was seen as the hope of Guinea-Bissau. You know, the funny thing is no UN Secretary General becomes a rock star in a country. It was embarrassing sometimes. I'd go, I would travel all over the country because I told my staff, I will bring the UN to the people. I'm not going to stay in these four walls of our compound. I'm here to connect with the people. And I would be received with banners, with flags, with dance, as if they were receiving the president of the country or the secretary general. Of course, the secretary general never even went to Guinea-Bissau anyway. <laughs> so I was busy, but obviously in the course of these 10 years, I always stay engaged, alert about things in Timor-Leste. 
my country, where my brothers, two brothers, a sister died for the country, the country of my birth, of my family, most of my family. Born, died in Timor, and I always stayed forever uh, linked to. Running for president again was not in my plan. For two years, I have been approached by Shanana and others, many, many people. And I decided finally to say yes, because there is so much pressure and the expectations placed on me to run again. Because the last five years under our uh, clueless president and the clueless Prime Minister Humatorua, the country stagnated, disappeared from international radar. And this is the president you are running against yeah. on the 19th of April. We were facing some constitutional issues, challenges, whereby the president of the Republic seemed to have exceeded his powers, then blocked the appointment of several members of a cabinet that was proposed by a government led by Shanana. Can you elaborate a bit on that and on the political situation now in Timor-Leste? Yes. The political crisis set in motion in 2018 when the outgoing president, Francisco Terluolu, exceeding presidential authority in our semi-presidential system, whereby the most voter party or a majority parliamentary alliance are the ones forming government, the president his only role is to invite the leader of the most voted party or the leader of the parliamentary alliance with majority in parliament to form government. The president invite him or she to form government and him or she select his team, his cabinet and the president swear in this cabinet. That's all his role is. But Mr. Luolu, having studied a bit of law, mis-studied constitutional law, particularly our constitution, and decided not to swear in nine cabinet members of the coalition in 2018, led by Mr. Taur Mataruak and Mr. Shanana Guzman. Doesn't mean the government ceased to function, doesn't mean no budget passed, no, but it was a violation of the Constitution because in our political system, that's the role of the president. Unlike the presidentialist system of Indonesia, the Philippines, the United States, where the president is also the prime minister, I mean, he's an executive president. In our case, no, the prime minister is the leader of the cabinet, the chief executive officer. The president, his role is to swear in. So that set in motion a crisis, uh, tensions that lasted till now. In view of that, and in view of COVID and the global recession, and our economy sinking for no reason, because uh, we have uh, $20 billion cash. Are you talking about the oil revenues the country yeah. has? We have cash to play with, to seize on the regional economic crisis and the COVID to actually turn things around. And uh, out of the crisis pandemic, Timor economy could grow by investing in agriculture, in protecting our small business. So instead, the government paralyzed. So I decided to run.
If you're looking now at the ballot from the first round with the 16 candidates, you see some familiar faces and some faces of the 75 generation. Yeah. Okay. What do you think about when people say, well, isn't it time for the new generation then to step up? Isn't it time for the 75 generation, such as yourself, to leave it on to the others and make this transition? Well, you look at the cabinet today, you don't see anyone from the 75 generation. You go to the parliament, you don't see anyone from the 75 generation. The only people, and I'm not even in the government, I haven't been in the government for 10 years. It's not like I was there for like politicians in Europe that you are there forever, you know, or in the United States or uh, some countries in Asia. But even Al-Kathiri, how many years was he in, uh, in office? The whole notion of uh, that the older generation don't seem to cling to power. I say, well, I'm sorry, but in a democracy, anyone, new generation or not, that you wish to govern, you join a political party or you create your own. And with tenacity, with uh, brilliance, you start winning the electorate, the trust of the people. So if you're talking about new generation, who are you talking about? Well, the new generation that came 10 years, more or less, a bit of after us. And like they say, oh, they, they should step aside. Well, the electorate decide who should step aside. The so-called young generation that demand democracy, but expect somehow that miraculously they don't have it to go. They should not go through the boring, the very tiring, frustrating modern politics in the political party system. They want to be right away president. They want to be right away prime minister. The simple academic jargon must be now hand over to the new generation. Excuse me, how do you want me to hand over? Uh, in some ceremony I hand over? <laughs> and I'm worried about that, yeah. I'm worried about that, and they are worried. Today, at uh, my lecture long at Universidad uh, de Paz, I talk about that. In five years from now, I said, what if Shanana stepped out completely in 2027, assuming he's still very healthy, energetic, mentally and physically steps out? Will this country feel like very much an orphan? Or there will be so-called new generation that uh, have uh, you know, faithfully, ably taken over and reassure the people that the new leaders, not because leadership is not only the president, it's not only the prime minister, it's the whole cabinet, the whole parliament, the whole society. But this is part of the building of a country. We are only 20 years independent and it will take much, much longer this is not, uh, we are not building a small business, a restaurant or a taxi company. <laughs> you buy a fleet of cars, you get drivers. So this year marks a special year. It's not only the presidential election, but it's also 20 years of independence. How would you describe the post-independence era? Knowing what I know and many hundreds of thousands of Timorese know, what the country went through, 
in the previous 24 years. And what, what the country witnessed suffer in 99 during the worst of the violence in the post-referendum, when the country was thoroughly destroyed, a people profoundly traumatized. Looking back in this short span of time, 20 years, I would say we have done remarkably well. A. We achieve national reconciliation. We heal the wounds of the body and of the soul of previously divided Timorese communities. We heal the wounds with Indonesia. We build bridges of friendship and a true partnership with Indonesia. Not much more one can say that is more important than that, because without achieving national reconciliation among the Timorese, and the Timorese with Indonesia, we wouldn't have a peace in our borders, peace in the country. We had sporadic violence in the beginning, but minor. When you compare in the scale of violence in the world, we have a sporadic violence in 2006, that's about it. And, uh, but between youth groups, we have a zero ethnic-based violence or religious-based violence. The country is actually very homogeneous in terms of that it has 98% Catholic, then small communities of Protestants, and even smaller communities of Muslims, Timorese and Indonesian Muslims. And uh, the country also is very homogeneous in the sense that it has uh, a unifying language besides religion, Tetum, which is becoming more and more a lingua franca, mixed from uh, Tetum, which is Malay language, with thousands of words from Portuguese. So, very common language, so we have a very unified. So, Timorese are very polyglot by nature. In 2000, we had only 20 medical doctors. Now we have close to 1,200 medical doctors. Mostly trained in Cuba. In 2002, we had one, in, one Timorese with a PhD. Now, dozens of them hundreds with master's degrees done either in Timor-Leste or around the region. So we have a, a lot of young, educated people. Not enough for the needs of the country today or the future. Some huge challenge still. One area that I would readily say I'm very disappointed is we still have a child malnutrition, general malnutrition, that is just uh, unacceptable. And that's failure of the Timorese leadership, but not only Timorese, the so-called donor community. All of these countries, agencies that say they come here to help Timor-Leste, what the hell they have done all these years with so much money that allegedly allocated by their countries, by the European Union, UN for Timor because many of these monies were not directly allocated to the Timor-Leste government. It was directly managed and implemented by the UN agencies and the, the agencies of the government, like Australia or US. They don't give us the cash. They fund the program. So although you have been part of the UN, you're still skeptical about what it's doing in Timor-Leste? Not only the UN, the donor community in general, because the UN, in the end, the UN gets its money from the same countries that we get. The failure is from uh, the donor community in general, and that's not only in Timor. The failure of uh, ODA, Overseas Development Aid, 
50 years more or more of the ODA around the world. Well, poverty has been rampant, failure. Why? Too much money spent on themselves, on the donor countries, on their repetitive uh, field missions, field studies, comparative studies, expert studies. Even international NGOs make huge money. I sometimes I was shocked when I heard how much a young woman from an international NGO were making in Timor. But that's not only in Timor. Only 30% of the aid money is actually spent in Timor-Leste. But in other countries like Afghanistan, only 10% of the so-called aid money was spent in Afghanistan. There is a difference between how much money spent on the country and in the country. On the country, yes, you see these uh, huge figures from the donor country. But when you investigate how much money spent in the country, it's minute. That's one. Of course, you cannot blame only the donor countries, no. Our own countries, our own leaders, governments also have a fail. Either wrong policies or not enough human resources, weak administration, weak accountability, corruption. So there is a part of it, but is uh, that's not all. Of course, in some countries, God, the robbery by officials, by elites, is huge. Timor-Leste corruption, yes, it is a problem, but not huge. Some people I've spoken to say that nothing much has changed in the last 20 years since independence. What do you think about that? Either they are profoundly dishonest or uh, they must have been living in some other planet. Can anyone in his right mind and judgment saying that uh, not much has changed in 20 years? Oh God, how idiotic. I, I mentioned to you earlier where the country was in 99, 2000, ruins, hundreds of thousands of people displaced, profoundly traumatized people. In the whole country, 20 doctors. Now we have 1,200 doctors. Life expectancy before independence was less than 60 years. Now for women, 71, for men, 70 something. We had a no network of roads. It would take you four hours to go to Baucau. Now it can be an hour, 45 minutes, two hours. No electricity at night. Now 80% of the country cover with electricity. How can someone in his or her right mind say nothing changed? If some young Timorese would tell them, I would say, listen, you are either absolute uh, idiot or you are just dishonest. You are angry with something else and I don't care why you are angry. But facts are facts. And I don't take credit for all this progress because I was not the prime minister. I was foreign minister for a few years. So the progress, yeah, I credit to Shanana leadership. I credit to the fact that suddenly we got more money from oil and gas and owe nothing to the international community in terms of development because 
All of these roads, bridges, electricity, we paid with our own money. So, yeah, the international community, they help in some other ways, but uh, not with the economy. And you mentioned 1999 and 2000. The country has been brutally occupied for 24 years. You have been advocating over the world, bringing the cause of East Timor under international attention. How do you feel that history is still affecting the daily life of, of the Timorese? Well, when you have a, a society, 24 years of violence, the scars are not visible. But for many, including for my own mother, my, our late mother, who went through Japanese occupation, World War II, and lost her mother, and all other relatives in the Remishu area. And then she went through Indonesian occupation. She witnessed a lot, besides suffering directly, she witnessed a lot around her. She was never happy with our reconciliation, national and with Indonesia. She was a very simple woman, courageous woman. She spoke her mind. Many others are like that and totally natural, but the path we chose is what brought us peace in the country and a great relationship with Indonesia. But not only the history of the violence of the past, because the history of the past also showed tremendous inspiration, the courage of the people to, to believe and fight on. Uh, incredible. I know all the struggles in the world because I read all of them, all these years from Palestine to Tibet to Kurdistan, all over Central America, the different struggles, Africa, across Southern Africa, East Africa, anything you think of, I know the successful ones, the failed ones, like Sri Lanka, total failure, one struggle and uh, Palestine and the Kurdistan. And I have to say the Timorese one was incredibly unique in the sense, isolated, small place, zero logistic support from the back, even from a grain of rice, let alone weapons to feed the resistance. And yet people uh, never give up, using incredible brilliance, ingenuity, to create resistance, to smuggle information, to cheat the Indonesians, and the, the number of people killed and tortured. Not much like that. And that's nothing to be proud of in the sense that I boast about the resistance. Well, we don't boast about the violence. Any violence is painful to anyone, but it's just incredible. And I, uh, I don't know whether, me personally, I'm, if I were here, I would be as courageous, tenacious as they are. Whether I would have survived the pressure, the hunger, the fear, and fight on. Maybe I would have surrendered to the Indonesian. Well, my brother and sister didn't surrender. They fought and died. And uh, my mother, our mother, simple woman, almost illiterate, she went to the mountains, came to Dili. After a one month, she started getting involved in the underground, Kalandistina. When she died, that's when I was surprised how much she was respected by the people. 
So many witnesses came forward. Oh, we met with her. She helped us. Then it was them, because our family were preparing to bury her in a normal cemetery, simple cemetery in Bekusi. We had made a decision. Then suddenly, veteran leaders, the army leaders, came to the house. And they said, we have just been to see the president. We told the president that Mrs. Natalina is a national hero. She has to be buried in the Metinaro Cemetery. We, some of my sisters didn't want. I said, we, we already made the decision to bury in Bekusi. Metinaro is far for us to go. I told my sisters, one in Australia, one in Portugal. I said, listen, you are living in Australia and you're living in Portugal. So it's in Dili or not in Dili, it doesn't matter. You are not here anyway. For me, I don't mind going to Metinaro. If that's what the resistant people, the president want, yeah, let's take her there. So she's buried there. So we all know about the struggle. It has an influence, but in the positive way. People are very proud of it. Visitors to Shega, to the museum, majority Timorese and plenty. And uh, the resistance fighters still very much respected. The youth that took part in this, then they were youth, Santa Cruz, and the underground, the old youth, the people involved in Santa Cruz were not elderly people, the old youth, and many died, very much respected. Mariano Savino, Fernando Lassama, Gregorio Saldana, and many others who support my campaign are with me. God, these people, they, they gave themselves entirely, their youth, to the struggle. Without, you know, any certainty that you're going to be alive tomorrow, or the country will be free tomorrow. Year after year, year after year, you just fight on. Maybe the last question, and what are your hopes for the future of Timor-Leste? Today, speaking at Peace University, I said, for me, the next five years, among many other things, I want to consolidate peace, democracy in this country. I want our society to be a very compassionate one, that we look after the children, the women, the mothers, that we resolve the issue of extreme poverty and the child malnutrition, that this country is uh, very embracing of everyone, that we uh, deepen the reconciliation process, particularly not forgetting the many thousand Timorese still on the other side of the border. In Otambua, Kupang, we, because we forgot about them. I tried when I was president to get parliamentarians to agree to my proposal, a sweeping national amnesty law. Although I know that when it comes to serious crimes and crimes against humanity, no national amnesty law can wipe out the indictments. I didn't succeed, and I mentioned it in my farewell speech in 2012, that I regret that I didn't succeed. I intend to do that to complete the process of reconciliation. Because the UN created this Serious Crimes Panel, Serious Crimes Unit, a hybrid international crime tribunal. They knew they'll be here only two years, and knowing that this kind of a process take forever. Look at ex-Yugoslavia, look at Cambodia. 
And then they left and dumped all of this on us. And we had long lists of indictments. And without understanding that some of the so-called militias, they saved many people. It was not black and white. A militia leader from Bokau, he is the one who saved Bokau from being destroyed. He told the other militia people, don't come here, I'll kill all of you. They, they didn't go. Yeah, I think that's why I'm, I want this law. And uh, of course, the economy. You know, I want the country the next five years to be booming economy. We will be joining ASEAN maybe next year, 2023 already. If I'm elected, confirmed, I will lead the last stages of our membership. I will reactivate strongly our international relations through my network. And joining ASEAN means much greater economic opportunity for Timor-Leste. And I said, quality of leadership for me, there are two. One, the leader has to be obviously bright. You have to be absolutely bright. But you also have to have a big heart. Leadership with compassion. Brilliance and the compassion. The two most important ingredients for me to be a good leader. Thank you so much for your time on the podcast, uh, Dr. Answorth. It's an honor. Thank you, and best of luck the upcoming days with the campaign. And Welcome. Round. This is Amber Vortman, and I've been in conversation with Mr. Jose Ramos Horta. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.